I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. In little more than a week, we'll mark 40 years since one of the darkest days in American politics, government, and culture. 40 years since President Richard Nixon resigned our nation's highest office. Much has been written and reviewed about Watergate, so much that there would seem little room for anything new. But there is. John Dean played a key role in the Watergate tale. He served as counsel to the president during that time, and while he did not know of the break-in when it occurred, nor of White House involvement for many months later, he found himself, perhaps unwittingly, becoming a central player in what he calls the Nixon defense. In the last years, Dean listened to and transcribed the primary Watergate source material, Nixon's own White House recordings. Incredibly, many of these conversations have never been transcribed, cataloged, and examined. That's what Dean has done, and in the process, he says, connected the dots between what we believe about Watergate and what actually occurred. He's documented it all in a new book, The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It. John, thanks for joining me. You write on the first pages of your book that this is a story that has been told and retold, but never as I'm going to tell it in the pages that follow. Before we get into what's different about the content of your book, what was different about your approach? Well, one thing I know the end of the story, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which uh, which uh, makes a difference. And while I did have other documents and was able to put some context around these conversations, there were countless conversations, about 600. I don't think anybody outside the archives ever heard. And uh, even those that have been around, uh, for example, the Watergate special prosecutor did about 80 transcripts. But only about 12 of those were really good, the ones they used in the trial, uh, because uh, the key players, Bob Haldeman, from the, who had been White House Chief of Staff, and John Ehrlichman, who had been uh, White House Counsel before me and then was the top domestic advisor, they, as being defendants in the trial, listened carefully to these and corrected them. Uh, so those were good. But the other ones, I asked the uh, the Watergate prosecutor years later when I was listening to him, I said, who who did these? And they said, most of them were done by, white, uh, by FBI secretaries because they wouldn't even recognize who was speaking. They wouldn't separate press secretary Ron Ziegler from Ehrlichman, for example. Uh, so I redid all those. Then Historian Stanley Cutler did about 320 conversations, but those are all partial transcripts. And often in – I don't do transcripts. I use the transcripts as the basis for dialogue and narrative. But uh, Stanley, for example, will have an asterisk in the middle of his transcript, and you, uh, that could be 20 minutes of conversation just in that asterisk – or ellipses, excuse me, not an asterisk, but an ellipses. And so it was unable to tell how uh, much material was left out. So when I redid them, I find – Often stuff, stuff he didn't think was important, I did think was important. So I ended up doing them all, and it became a massive project. It took four years, actually, to do it, uh, working with an evolving team of students. Had one woman who was exceptional. She uh, uh, was working on her Ph.D. in archival science and had been a legal secretary. So she was careful. She uh, was fast and did about 500 of the conversations. I did about 250, and the other students did about 250. So uh, that's the backbone of this material. It cr created about 
almost probably about four million words in transcripts. I mean, it, it was a, that was probably the first surprise for me. I mean, how is it possible such a a massively important component to you know our culture, our our history, almost how we think about government today? I mean, we think about so many of the um, you know elements, and I know you've been you know you've testified on some of these from from NSA uh, listening and and you know other aspects to concerns about privacy to you know oversight some of these uh, um, uh, campaign finance laws that are now being uh, maybe not repealed but pushed back I mean so much of our current approach to government is based off of Watergate and what occurred during it and and in the aftermath it seems impossible that that these uh, recordings were never fully listened to but but that's what happened well after after Nixon left they kind of gave up the uh, the effort and he, while he was alive as post-president, fought tooth and nail to prevent them from coming out after having done them. I understand why he didn't want them out. Uh, he lost that battle ultimately, and they sat there. Uh, I, I suspected, you know, if, if people, if they discover how, how difficult it is to transcribe them. Uh, the Oval Office is pretty good audio quality. The telephone conversations that he uh, recorded are excellent, and there were many of those, not enough. Uh, the executive office building office, uh, his hideaway kind of office, uh, are terrible. Uh, and this, the, the equipment was primitive. Uh, if people weren't sitting right over microphones, uh, they're very difficult to pick up, and it just takes, it's a tireless process. Uh, I have a little, I put together a little PowerPoint I'm going to use on, on the road on my book tour, and I got the uh, the woman who did about 500 of these things to do a little two-minute clip, and she <laughs> she ends it with saying, and you just do this over and over and over and over, <laughs> and that's the way you get them. Yeah, it, it, it really takes a while. So... W- What's the why? What what made you decide? I mean, was it? Did you all of a sudden kind of come to a, con- a realization of all the you know items, all the the the, the content and the you transcripts? Know, what, yeah, what was the why? Chris, if I'd have known what I was getting in for, I probably wouldn't have taken on the project. But yeah. I was deep into it. I I went into it trying to figure out how Nixon, as savvy politically as he was, and just a basically intelligent man could have resulted, had the presidency that he he uh, headed turn into all the problems it, it created. I mean, just how could somebody that's savvy uh, mess things up as badly as he did? And I was curious to know how that happened, because uh, I knew a lot of the story uh, and indeed was involved in his fall. But I, there was so much I didn't know. And I thought, well, the tapes probably have the answer, and I think probably those would be the important tapes if somebody's probably done them. And I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. Nobody even cataloged them. Uh, so I was deep into it, and I said, well, I'm in it. Uh, there's only one way to do it, and it was going to be time-consuming and expensive. Uh, but I said, that, you know, it, it, I'm in a unique position because I, uh, for example, I can hear things that others can't because I know the players. I know their speech cadence. I know their... Uh, a lot of the substantive issues I was familiar with. So sometimes my transcribers who would do a first draft, I found that the easiest way to do it, to have them do the first draft and then me to correct the transcript. Uh, and I could tell just from reading a transcript if they were having trouble with it, 
and then I would listen to those parts parts of the conversations. So, so let's get into it. What, what what's new? What was your first aha revelation? Where you heard something, learned something, and said to yourself, "Wait a minute, that's not what I believed before. I didn't know that. That's not what the public believes. This is new." I had a lot of that. Uh, in fact, the way I did them, I didn't do the, when I was doing transcripts myself. Uh, I was actually often at, towards the end of the story and working on them. And I decided I w- would write the book. I wouldn't start writing. Uh, I-, I could realize right away that the story from the transcripts fell down into nice four clean sections. You know, the formation of the cover-up, uh, the the containing of the cover-up when it was stayed in effect. Then it begins to unravel. And then Nixon comes down with his hard final defense. He has a number of defenses, but it's the final one, uh, and that's where he is hands-on. He's taken charge of the cover-up, and it really then becomes the cover-up of the cover-up. Uh, so it fell nicely, uh, it, it sort of sequentially. I did not start writing, as I say, though, until the, the, the students had finished parts one, two, and three, and then I started listening and what have you. I wanted to keep the story fresh to tell it, Excuse me, and uh, and not know in advance what what would be coming up. I would only read two or three or four conversations ahead, so I knew how to write. I overwrote the first draft, and then would go back and and peel it and pare it back uh, to make it readable and work for the reader. Uh, taking the parts of the conversation and following the thread of the story. So I I don't think there's a page of the book that there isn't something I didn't know before on it. Uh, I didn't know how much Nixon knew. Uh, so the first aha moment is, by golly, he's only getting his information principally from Bob Haldeman initially, his chief of staff, then secondarily from John Ehrlichman. Uh, gets nothing from his former attorney general, John Mitchell, who's deep into it, and the rest comes from the newspaper. Uh, so he even more surprising is when he presses them, initially he doesn't want to know anything, and then he, but he gets curious and thinks he should know something, and he often was asking Haldeman and Ehrlichman questions, and they dissemble. They don't tell him the truth, or they don't give him the information he needs to know. So that was something of a surprise. Um, it was something of a surprise to learn that he does know all the key elements of the cover-up, uh, long before he forms the defense, where he claims he didn't know about the cover-up until I told him about it in March of 1973. The break-in occurs and the arrests occur in June of 72. Uh, during the campaign, he's re-elected, and uh, then he wants to start cleaning things up. He, Haldeman and Ehrlichman are busy with the structuring and reorganization of his and staffing of his second term. And that's when he turns to me, and I'd say, I'm eight months in. Uh, and while I'm aware a cover-up's going, I'm already un- very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, and, and that's when and you talk about March. Uh, and in fact, I guess, uh, um, you know, it's a, a conversation March 21st of 73 where right. you, in a sense, become the central part or a central part of, of Nixon's defense. Does the, 
does your view, I mean, you obviously, you knew all of these folks extremely well. You worked with them. And some of them, I think it's Ehrlichman who you, you know, even had a relationship with, you know, going back before the, these days. Did your view or understanding of people who you already knew, whether that was the president, whether that was Haldeman, Ehrlichman, others, change as you listened to this? I mean, did this revise your own view of history and your own sense of your, your understanding of these, you know, these folks as people? I can't say that happened for me personally, no. I, I pretty well knew the personalities of the, of the players. I was often uh, found jaw-dropping things they tried to, to pull off uh, and was somewhat surprised. I, I, You know, Nixon does surprise. He is a remarkable character. Uh, uh, and once he realizes he's in trouble... Uh, uh, he is. Uh, uh, he plays it out. He he becomes really obsessive compulsive about it. And it was that was, as a writer that was very difficult because he would repeat things, not only with the same person but with different people, and sometimes, uh, you know, two dozen times in the same day. Uh, so I had to. I couldn't tax a reader to go through that. All I had to give the reader enough of a sense of the fact this was his modus operandi, and this is what had happened to him. Uh, uh, but I, so I would just go through the conversations and broadly mention to the reader that this was happening and then try to distill out what was new in his rehashing and, and trying to reshape uh, events to deal with his problems. In fact, that obsessive compulsiveness that you identify, that you kind of noticed in what you were listening, you asked about, you asked others about that. Did Nixon show that in other areas, other issues that he was trying to deal with? And and I think the answer that you got was, you know, he, he may have done it a little bit, but it was really heightened around Watergate. This really must have, I mean, this really took over his, his mind and, and everything he was worrying about. Yeah, I did talk to other scholars who've worked with the tapes and have written books uh, with Nixon using the tapes and other documents, and they said, "Yes, there were." I, I told them the kind of situation I was being confronted with. I said, "Had you experienced that in, say, China and some of the foreign policy issues, the end of the Vietnam War and anti-war demonstrators, and some of these?" No, they had not seen anything close to the uh, uh, the just unending repetition and rehashing of issues with Watergate uh, as if he can't just get it. Uh, and it was pretty clear. And he, you know, he's a very bright man. Uh, but what you do is you just see him sort of disintegrate over this issue. Talk to me about the the relevance for today. I mean, so much obviously has been written and talked about, you know, with, with Watergate. Um, why is it important to have, you know, an even more complete telling of the story um, today? How do you how do you connect that? Right. There certainly are many new revelations, uh, and no one had ever really looked at the full pattern of Nixon's behavior and tried to understand it. And, it, and just hearing it and seeing it day to day it makes that possible. But I think there's a great I think there are great lessons to be learned. Uh, you know, we always look to our presidents and see how they performed. We'll never have a record like this ever again. No president's ever going to uh, voice activate, record himself, uh, particularly in the kind of conversations Nixon 
did where he was, you know, that he was being Nixon. He's aware of the machine sometimes, and other times he's clearly unaware of it. But what a couple things come through. There's there's incredible drama in this story that I really hadn't fully appreciated uh, within the Oval Office and within Nixon's closest circle. There is also a lot of just raw study of human nature that comes through this whole process. Uh, so we can learn from it. We, I think people learn more from people making mistakes than they do from successes. Yes, successes can be guides, uh, but when you see a repetitive practice of mistake-making, uh, I think there are lessons, there are management lessons, there are decision-making lessons, and there's also something that I learned along the way in working on this book that really kind of explains Watergate. I don't get into this kind of commentary. I just repeat the facts. But what some people are going to draw away from this, uh, including yourself, myself when I talk about it in other contexts, uh, is here's a president in what's got to be called a loss frame situation. He has no good options after the arrest occurs. Uh, how do people deal with a loss frame? Because we know from a lot of solid social science that people who have negative prospects in their decision-making do irrational things. Nixon is a prototypical loss-frame decision-maker. Uh, and he, all of us were, uh, that found ourselves when we, when we got on the wrong side of this issue, uh, and, and no one really, uh, was intentionally trying to concoct some sort of grand conspiracy to obstruct justice. Uh, so I, you know, a lot of this is, is unwitting, uh, getting himself on the wrong side of the law and to watch and and see how people dealt with that. I mean, there's something of a handbook here uh, in the negative sense of what to avoid, and you can see the times when it should have been avoided. So I think there's some some bigger lessons here, and it just happens to be uh, examples that are on stilts and steroids. This is pretty – when presidents uh, do it, 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 it's at a different level. You obviously you got brought into you know a situation and and then you know acted within a situation that uh, you know reframed your own personal direction probably re, you know reframed the way you look at uh, I would expect uh, you know all sorts of aspects of life. Um, does this did, did the writing of this and the listening of this and I mean you've written so many books on it and I mean you've you've been you know you, you've been cathartic about it in in a number of uh, you know conversations interviews your you know books etc. Um, did this did this provide something additional for you and and does this on on any level? Well, to, to me, there's no sense in telling the story if you don't tell us honestly. I can't say this this book was cathartic. Uh, what I tried to do with this book was to report it as honestly as I could get it off the tapes, to not take distorted pictures from the tapes, but try to take, uh, you know, an honest assessment of that conversation, what came out of that conversation, and then just let it unfold uh, and, and let the story speak for itself. I minimized the, com- the commentary along the way, only necessary sometimes to say, well, you know, here's Ehrlichman telling uh, Nixon something that is just an outright lie. He will later be prosecuted. I often used little uh, footnotes uh, 
to advise the reader that this is just baloney he's telling the president because it was uh, uh, it w- was false, and he doesn't he doesn't want the president to realize the importance of to the cover up of his action in authorizing the Ellsberg break in in California by Hunt and Liddy before they get arrested at the Watergate. So I, things like that are, are are the extent of the commentary. I just they're just more of a factual nature, so that people could understand and appreciate what's going on. Because not everybody is well steeped in this, and I try to roll the story out slow enough that they become somewhat familiar with the characters. Uh, and also, as it happens, uh, parts one, two, and three represent about 300 conversations. Part four represents over 600 conversations and often much longer conversations. Uh, so the uh, there was much more material. That's when he gets into this obsessive-compulsive phase. Um, so telling the story was a challenge as much as anything, and to do it is, you know, somebody, anybody can, can check these conversations and listen to them themselves. Uh, I put a, an appendix in it on Appendix C, uh, that, that's going to be posted on publication with hyperactive links uh, to the uh, all the conversations, except for part one, where part one does, and that's only about 35, 36 conversations where the cover-ups being formed. Those are still only posted at the Miller Center, the uh, Nixon Library run by the National Archives. Doesn't have those yet. Uh, they will be there soon. Uh, I know that my publisher put those out. Uh, we decided to, to, they did an enhanced ebook, and those actually, the, both those conversations, the audio, as well as my transcripts for them, are going to be uh, made available with the ebook. And and just to close out, uh, John, the the uh, subtitle of your book is "What He Knew and When He Knew It." Um, I had forgotten. I didn't, uh, and and I recalled in in doing the research for this that famous line, one of the most famous lines in American culture, was said by Senator uh, Howard Baker um, while while you were testifying. Did right. you did did you kind of when you heard that at that time? Did that ring out to you? I mean, did you kind of did you? Well, I knew what Howard Baker was doing at the time. They were they were trying to trap me in perjury, and, and so he wanted to go conversation by conversation. What did the president know, and when did he know it? They thought I would, you know, make more uh, slew of outrageous comments about Nixon's knowledge and what have you. Uh, he was just being a good cross examiner. And and as it happened, I under-testified. I, you know, I, I, the only mistake I made, now that I've looked at all the tapes, is I conflated dates. Our, I realized our minds are not time-stamped. And I also could only testify, with rare exception, I remembered the words that were spoken, but, uh, uh, but not always exactly verbatim, but close. You know, cancer on a president. I knew I'd told the president... There was a cancer on the presidency. Uh, I didn't remember, as I actually hear the tape, it wasn't quite the same as I testified to it. I testified to the gist of things. So I knew what he was doing, and I was being very careful. Uh, uh, and I did get some conversations wrong. I, 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 I had split a couple conversations. These happen sometimes 
a couple conversations in a day and then uh or in in succession over a number of days and so i you know you you just can't your mind uh, i have a great appreciation for memory how lousy it is and so that's why i've always you know i thought these tapes are much more important i when i wrote my prior watergate related autobiographical material a book called blind ambition i didn't have access to to the uh, audio of all the tapes and, uh, and then only a tran- a few transcripts of some of the conversations so i while this book is not autobiographical there is a lot of autobiographical material and some of it's in the narrative most of it's in the notes uh, because I, needless to say, recalled things I had long forgotten. Well, the, well, much if not all of it is captured in uh, your, you know, really unbelievable new book, The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It. John Dean uh, was counsel to President Nixon. Uh, he is now author of more than 10 books uh, and a whole lot more. Um, and, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Pleasure to visit with you. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.